This is HashMap on Tap with Randy Pitcher, Kelly Kalevel, and Preetpal Singh. Today we're going to talk about Oracle Exadata and the ongoing migration wave to cloud alternatives. Kelly, Preetpal, thanks for coming on the show today. What are you guys drinking today? Hey, Randy. Great day for a show. I'm actually having a tea today. I've got a peak jasmine tea. Okay. It says it's to reduce stress and sustain energy. <laughs> I always need that. But what I did, I, I kind of followed your lead. I know you've talked about on the show a couple of times, you go to a farmer's market, open market there in uh, in OKC. Preetball had introduced me to a little spot in the Atlanta area. And I can't remember the name of it, but they had uh, Savannah Bee Company. Yeah. So I tried it. I really liked it. I told my daughter. So she had actually gotten me another bottle of this. It's a Tupelo raw honey from Savannah Bee Company out of Georgia for the holidays. And so I put a little splash of that in with those peak tea crystals and really enjoying it. Man, that's great. Prepaw, what are you having? Very good afternoon. It's beautiful here in Atlanta. It's almost 72. You know, we're seeing the fall colors change a little bit. Super excited for that. And I, I wanted to, you know, go towards a little bit more like a, a comfort drink. And yeah. I want to talk about this this trip I made to Rome. And I, I picked up on this cafe. The best way to uh, find good places is actually just ask the locals, right? So I happened to speak to this person and he said, I said, what's the, the best cafe in the entire of Rome? And I kind of asked that question to three, four, five people. And they all said the same thing, which is there's a cafe over there. It's a very beautiful setup. It's right in front of a church got those cobbled pathways, that 1780 type charm. And the name of this place was San Sustakio. And it's called the San Sustakio Ile Cafe. Boy, and that was that was coffee. That was Arabica coffee, really? which, which they had. And I, I found a way to get that supply over here in the U.S. in Atlanta. And <laughs> away. today I'm breaking that, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> you got the supply chain. Man, I think, Preepal, you are almost... Without even a close parallel, the most interesting person I know. Um, when you when you were in Rome, did you pick up any Italian? And no, like you know, just just a little bit of prego, prego, prego. prego. You know, there, there's a way the way they say it, right? I mean, almost like so. We when we Americans go there and we try to imitate Italian and we try to you know, we, we try to roll our R's and and elongate it. It sort of. He's like, you know, we're making fun of the Italian. No. <laughs> I, I, I avoid doing that. Man. So did you did you get to see any of the, the history and architecture and art there? Uh, yeah, a lot of it, actually. A lot of it. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. It's any Anybody wants to go. I think Rome is a great place. I, I did I did also enjoy my trip to the Palace of Versailles. Oh, okay. Uh, mm. So that, that's, that's also a great art place from that perspective. But Rome was beautiful. So... I cannot deny the best coffee actually comes from from Italy, and I don't know if this is correct or not. But but the the cost of espresso in Italy, they don't let it. I mean, I think it's some kind of a government mandate that it cannot be above one euro, right? Okay. So you know, like Kelly likes to have his double shot espressos. Oh yeah. If Kelly was in in Italy, he's guaranteed to get it for less than a euro, no more than a euro. Right. <laughs> I, I don't like to travel. I think everyone who like works with me for a small amount of time knows that. But I very badly want to go to Rome and, and like make a road trip of it. Do like some agriturismo, Milan, Florence, the whole whole area. Oh. I would love to do that. Yeah. Randy, did you go with a coffee today or a tea? <laughs> I went with the tea. I've been doing afternoon teas, and I was just talking before we started recording. Right. We're moving into a new house right now. We're still unpacking and stuff. And there's something about going to a new house where you get to 
maybe some some activities or behavior you wanted to do at the old place you just never got to. So I've had these loose leaf teas for a while and just didn't really get to. It. I kept drinking coffee. And there's something about the fall time and the way we set up the new kind of like cafe area where I'm doing a lot more teas. And this loose leaf one is from that farmer's market again. And it is coconut macaroon. The the kind of teas they're able to make, it's shocking to me. I usually think of tea as like very like herbal or fruit-based or cinnamon or something. And these are just so warm and they've got like fall flavors. There's like a pecan one as well. And I am loving it. I really look forward to it now almost more than the coffees. Sounds good. Sounds good. We'll have to uh, have to give that a shot. Well, guys, what are we uh, what are we talking about today? Yeah, let's get into exadata, and I'm gonna call up front just so everyone knows that I, when we did the Natiza episode, right, which is oh. a similar format to this. Yeah, I had very little hands-on experience in Natiza. I understood it conceptually, right, and I've helped people in and around the Natiza space, mostly from Snowflake, not mm. actually on the system. Exadata, I actually understand even less, if that's possible, than Natiza. So I'll I'll be playing the the role of the the new person who's curious and can ask questions. But we're going to talk about Oracle Exadata. I was thinking, Kelly, you could do the honors of just introing. What is Exadata? Maybe give us some history on it. Well, unlike you, I was actually around from the original announcement. In fact, it's it's interesting. I was sitting at Oracle Open World in two thousand eight. So Exadata was really not Exadata. Originally, it was announced as the HP Oracle database machine. Oracle did not have Sun Microsystems at the time. They had not bought Sun. And so Oracle partnered with HP. But there was such anticipation around this. We had, I think I've told this story before and I'll just, I'll shorten it. But it was just so difficult to compete with the appliances that were on the market at the time, specifically Teradata and Natiza. And Oracle released that HP Oracle database machine as a response to that. It became Exadata the next year when they incorporated in a smart cache. And it, it has really, really done well over the years. And I, I just I remember sitting in the audience, thousands of people, this thing getting uh, introduced. And I'm texting. I'm not going to name the clients, but I'm texting multiple clients. Guys, it's finally here. We've been talking <laughs> to you about it for the last year. You know, it's announced. And. And uh, I remember everybody at Oracle was really excited. It, it really, it really was a very, very good platform. You know, again, the 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 need to have to when you talk about appliances, the need to struggle with trying to put together all the architecture versus having my memory, uh, my storage, my compute, uh, my networking all configured together, where it's more of a roll it in, plug it in, start loading data was just so valuable. So that's kind of my earliest memory of of Exadata. Prepaul, what what about you? I have had, I've had the unique fortune of of playing with so much tech and my my experience with Oracle was I had a had a very beautiful boss beautiful in the sense of, of work right <laughs> yeah. and her name is Noni Gonzalez and she and I like I was I was an enterprise architect on her team when I was back in the singular days and and we had an exclusive contract with Oracle one of those things called EULAs you know those are my days when I when I got exposed to the entire Oracle product suite, including Exadata, you know, Coherence, WebLogic was being acquired at that point of time, and a whole bunch of other things, right? I had the I had the unique fortune of playing a lot with first with Oracle, Nani, NG, and then with Exadata as well, because it was an engineered system. You know, back in the day when I used to do a lot of work with like Oracle Nani's and NGs you have to almost beg for performance, right? And on top of that, you know, like your rack instances, 
kind of set up a little bit more convoluted for a distributed architecture with with a shared mm-hmm. file architecture and all that right so so exadata just came in at the right time to to solve a lot of these things for customers i still have uh, recollections how the dbf files and all that would work and how file systems etc were adding to the performance of an oracle or or degrading the performance of an oracle and an oracle was pitching a solution which was a vertically engineered solution and said hey man the file system actually resides in the hardware itself oh, really yeah so it's it was that was an era of vertical engineering where everybody was trying to you know take netiza or or even oracle just like kelly described you know it was an era where they were producing engineered systems where the things were getting collapsed into a little bit more let's say tighter stack let me ask this then is it like a hadoop environment where you're doing sql on read overlaid on top of files or does it just happen to also have a file system in addition to like block level storage of a database well the the engineering was in in my in my experience the engineering was not so much on the top side of the oracle database meaning the the cost based optimizers etc cetera, etc cetera. they were coming out of the traditional oracle database tapestry but the engineering was more at a hardware level right so instead of using a general purpose file system whether it's pad32 or ext or or what have you this was an engineered file system built natively on top of hardware to get you that special ounce of speed which is required right and then then the software was actually bundled up and and optimized for even the the cpu and other things to take advantage of of the underlying hardware i think back in those days you know iops was sort of the the biggest bottleneck in in terms of performance right i mean within oracle itself they had they done a pretty good job at parallel query processing and and what have you on a single instance so they didn't suffer so much from scaling at a compute well back then distributed computing was not in vogue at in that fashion but okay. they didn't they didn't struggle so much at a, a compute level stuff but they struggled at a more of an iops perspective and iops was getting more expensive so my take on exadata is it was it was an attempt a vertical engineering attempt to solve for that iop problem by by having a very core file system coming out of the machine itself and not relying on linux os or windows os and just working with that and then engineering around the cpu specs as well Yeah, I, I think Oracle, I, I would agree with all that people. I think Oracle did a really smart thing. So Oracle database running on a regular server, Oracle database running on Exadata, no changes required. If, if it was 9i, 10g, 11g, it was the same thing. And I think that was a really smart way to go because it meant that I could, you know, essentially lift and shift off of, you know, traditional server architecture right onto Exadata without having to make really any application changes or database changes at all and it allowed oracle to very very quickly get customers migrated onto that appliance get those benefits of caching and compression at the hardware level like prepaul was talking about without any major migration effort at all yeah and and to that right there was also another thing randy back back then you know you know the cap theorem the cap theorem talks about you know in any in any system you can get two of the three you know either you can get consistency or availability or or partition tolerance right so the thing is right when you take a hadoop or a cassandra or whatever they they are tuning the consistency aspect right oracle as a class of databases it will guarantee consistencies 
but at the same time you know there's only so much you can put or pack in one instance of a database a bm or a, a process engine with its sgs and pmons and smons right there's only so much you can pack in it right so they have to go and distribute it but i think what i kind of looked at the oracle architecture is they came up with rack rack was basically there was a file system behind and that file system was visible to all the machines in a oracle distributed rack yeah. uh, cluster and because the file was shared and it was seen by all of these things it it kind of had that special complexity attached to it with infinity band workings behind the scene to have all of those the pipes the network pipes constructed so that a transaction if it happens on db instance 1 can be mastered or you know you know that entire acidity principles and all that right so that if that transaction can be mastered if it if another write comes from another instance of the database they had to be synchronized to a particular file now for mm-hmm. synchronizing purpose right these rack instances would have to talk to each in the db instances have to talk to each other and say well i have the lock for this particular data block don't do anything with it and all of that now as you can imagine if i give this to a customer in an unbundled fashion like kerry talked about it's going to be a lot of pain and complexity and hardware setup issues and all of that thing and exadata take all of to call of that out they said well just cart in an appliance plug in the the cat5 cable or whatever and and roll with it right so okay. that that was the other problem with exadata really solved it was hardware engineered system as well as you know taking away the complexities of managing some of these setting up a, a truly distributed database on your own which is oracle okay so we got exadata did that come out this is something i was curious about did that come out before or after teradata after after that's a weird naming you think that was intentional because we you know have terabytes and exabytes obviously exa is bigger you think that's something they did on purpose or maybe a happy marketing accident I I think they didn't do anything with a happy marketing accident. I think <laughs> everything done was very deliberate and absolutely Teradata was was just ripping it up in the, at the time in the data well, warehouse. You got to be market. pretty confident then. If you're going to yeah. come out and say, "Well, we're Exa data." You you can't lose any bake off, you can't show any right. weakness if you're going to be that kind of aggressive. So, how did the market receive it? Was it was it touted as the leader in this space? Well, I mean it it took a little while to build up, but I would say between say, you know, it's always tough in in a V1. The cool thing was again, yeah. it was still the good old Oracle database that everybody knew and loved. And it, now you had this uh this hardware piece that simplified that. Took a lot of the infrastructure effort out. I would say, you know, the the market really started picking up 2009, 10, 11. I was at Oracle for 10 years until 13 and Exadata was becoming exceptionally popular. What's What's interesting though that this is all pre-cloud, right? Mm-hmm. I mean there was no you know public cloud technology infrastructure at that time and so that that was it was kind of the golden age for appliances Teradata, Netiza, uh, Exadata, Greenplum, Vertico, all those. We talked about having the show. I started looking at, you know, so so what have the revenues been for Exadata? And Oracle does break things down. They've got their, you know, cloud and software business. They've got their hardware business, which essentially is is Exadata. They don't do, uh, you know, laptops and all that kind of stuff. They got their services business. I looked I just went back 5 years. So I looked 2016 to today 2020. and uh looked at the numbers year over year and mm-hmm. i would say around 16 which is really interesting because i think we saw the same shift in our business in that 16 17 time frame 
2016 to 17, negative 13% uh, revenue on Exadata. Now this, really? again, you're going back, what, five years now, 17 to 18, negative 4%, 18 to 19, negative 6%, 19 to 20, negative 7%. So what used to be a $2.4 billion business for Oracle is now a $1.7 billion business. That's still, still not nothing though. That's still, really, a, still a sizable I business. I thought it would be cratered, yeah. right? So people are still yeah. enjoying the tool. Absolutely, but you're certainly not seeing growth. In fact, it is a it's it really is a steady decline, and yeah. I, and I think it's for two reasons. I mean, you look at the price. One one of the things I've I've always loved about Oracle they they publish their price list. Oh it, great! Oh, it's it's all out there. It it is. So when you look at an if I'm going to buy an Oracle database machine today, an Exadata database machine today, I can pay anywhere just for the machine nine hundred and thirty five thousand dollars. For a high capacity uh, half rack, even down to eh, I can get in for three hundred and sixty three thousand dollars for a quarter rack. So that's imagine that's just for the database machine. That's just for the database machine. I got to play. I got to pay support on top of that. I got to have Oracle licenses on top of that. I've got some. I've got some Exadata cloud options now where I can get in on a monthly price and and pay for it that way. But yeah. And it's really not specific, in my opinion, to Exadata. Its price in general has caused the drop-off in the appliance market. People just don't want to do those big CapEx-type purchases. And then you look at the architecture. Obviously, none of it was built for the cloud. So that's been a, a pivot that has been really, really tough for all of the companies, including Oracle. You know, my, my take is, you know, my, my take is a little more, I mean, that that's a fantastic explanation, which, which Kelly um, gave, right? My, my take was like slightly on a technical plane, what was there was Teradata was the, the king of the hill always was. And, and to a certain, a lot of extent, it is still credible, right? The, the technical perspectives I had is, you know, the analytics landscape, right? You know, people tend to think of analytics as one monolithic industry, but but what I have learned over the period of time is there is this this classic analytics, which, you know, where you're doing queries against millions and billions of rows and think of it in a Teradata, Teradata applicable analytics architectures. Then there are other scenarios where people want to do operational reporting, but joins of millions of records and whatnot. It does not get into a little bit of a Teradata land. See, Teradata has a problem. It's it's fantastic at analytics, but you know when you build those kind of platforms, concurrency and management of concurrency really becomes a problem. You can't run thousands of queries in one go against such a database, right? Yeah. That's where Xerata had that sweet spot. The sweet spot was, in the traditional sense, the when the when the world when the world did not have this term called big data, and there were like medium datas and small datas, right? That's where. Exadata excelled, right? That's where you had a purpose-built machine to actually look for a couple of records and do a join and get that result back in in a subsequent performance. Or you could, you know, run a join for a quarterly summary report and it will just do fine, right? Where Exadata and Teradata were trying to kind of headbutt with each other was the the billions of record joins, right? Hey, can you give me can you give me standard deviations or you know YTD summaries by day? For last three years, right? So that's where you start seeing a lot of these things. That's where that's where the niche for Exadata happened, right? Now, what has happened since then is that the industry also started transforming. The industry started transforming with cheap commodity hardware coming into play, cloud coming into play, the NoSQL platforms coming into play, 
the SQL platforms have also evolved. You know, a lot of people have engineered a lot of solutions on Postgres itself. People don't know a lot of that, right? That, that there are a lot more open source uh, twists or, you know, plays on Postgres SQL itself. And yeah. that's where they take away the, the competitive advantage with an Excel data has. I mean, Snowflake is an exact a, excellent example, right? I mean, why would I pay $935,000, $35,000 for a machine for getting a similar performance profile? Why can't I just use something which is commodity, right? So that's that's the that's the story behind the numbers. The story behind the numbers is there is an inflection point going on in terms of technology. Open source has been a, a good pressure on this whole ecosystem where open source does not always work, but, but it has enough pricing pressure that the other players in the market cannot just have a monopoly from a pricing perspective as well. Yeah. You know, Preepal, I was going to mention you, you alluded to it a while ago. A lot of people may not know you, you talked about a EULA. Uh, Oracle was uh, touting the uh, unlimited license agreements. And if, if I had a EULA in place as a customer and I had access to as much software as I wanted on an unlimited basis, that was also a nice driver for me, uh, assuming that the Exadata uh, and Oracle database software that I needed was on that EULA. All I had to do was pay for the hardware. And I, and I think in general, I think Customers are getting a lot more discerning about, do I do those EULA-type enterprise agreements? Or like you said, could I maybe go with more of a consumption-based model, not have to, to go through this and, and embed everything on you know, one particular vendor? But the cloud in general, uh, we talked about, it hasn't just fallen off the map. I mean, but it is it's no doubt has been chipping away at that appliance market over the last five, six years. Yeah, so so we're seeing people ask us, hey, how can I get off of this tool, either to minimize my footprint or to altogether just shut it down? I'm ready to move to a more cloud-based environment. I want pay-as-you-go. I want more elasticity. I, I, I want just be using the more modern tools that where most of the attention is being built. And, and sometimes we'll see them ask for a lift and shift, and sometimes we'll ask be asked for like a more modernization, holistic view of the world. What are we seeing from Exadata customers largely? Are they mostly lift and shift and mostly optimized? And how do we think about the difference between recommending one of those two options? Let, I'll, I'll jump in just real quick. This is a bit of an early story. I, I remember that there was an Exadata customer that uh, Snowflake invited us into. This is about two and a half, three years ago. And they said, hey, we would like you guys to uh, to help this customer uh, get a migration going, show them the ropes and, you know, kind of give them the process and all that. And I remember sitting down, it's, it's just blew me away. I remember sitting down at the table with the customer, uh, two, two of the key customer stakeholders there. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to going to be doing all this cool snow, uh, snowflake stuff. And I, and I sat down with these guys and I said, okay, Snowflake is, has uh, told me to help you uh, get this thing done. What kind of help do you need with Snowflake? They said, what, what do you mean? I said, yeah, we've got to help you with Snowflake. I said, no, 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 Snowflake, that's that's been working from day one. I, what I need help with is getting data off of Exadata, getting it replicated up to the cloud and getting it persisted into Snowflake. It has nothing to do with Snowflake. It has helped me with this whole Exadata thing. And uh, I think to your question, Randy, which probably Prepal can pick up, you know, we know that Snowflake works exceptionally well, but there, there are there are certainly some decisions to be made. Do I lift and shift? Do I optimize? Do I modernize? Pre-Paul, your take on that and what you're seeing out there in the market right now. Yeah, I think the decision tree is basically, you know, lift and shift or modernize. 
So Oracle Exadata normally, you know, if I talk about the OLAP land, right? I mean, the analytics piece of it, it, it normally comes with ODI or Informatica as an engine which is pumping data into it. And then there are a plethora of tools on the on the BI side which are integrating with them, whether it's business objects or or micro strategy or or Tableau and others, right? So so this is typically what we see in the in in the marketplace, right? Yeah, I mean talent has come recently, so has Pentaho. But I'm talking in a little bit more when these things were getting implemented in the 2008 to 2012. I would say 2000, yeah, 2008 to 2012 timeframe. This was the architecture pretty much in vogue. So what we see is that whole thing. Now, what customers are asking us is, if that is my tapestry, you know, um, and like Kelly alluded, right, getting getting the SQL off of Oracle Exadata into Snowflake is one part of the puzzle. But it's not really the biggest part of the puzzle. The biggest part of the long pole in the tent actually becomes this Informatica or or ODI space. And that's where customers are as, asking us for a lot of help. So, so we tend to recommend that, hey, what's what's the driver behind this? If the driver is, hey, I, I want to do it the right way and I'm willing to uh, put in the time and the money uh, to get it done, then we obviously recommend modernize. And what does modernize typically constitute? Modernize constitutes looking at their ETL design pattern, understanding where they are at with their consumption sources, because consumption sources in an analytics space have also changed, right? I mean, people are no longer just interested in pulling their Oracle ERPs or, you know, SAP data. You know, there are more sources which are popping up, which is, you know, Salesforce, AC Nielsen, Weather, NASDAQ, Internet, intercontinent, ICE, exchange data, commodities data, labor data, economic data. There's so many other types of data where analytics in a in a traditional sense is no longer just bound within the within the four walls of an enterprise it's also about data which exists outside of this enterprise which is also what snowflake is trying to tap into uh, with their data sharing model is is that we have to evaluate that we have to evaluate you know the the enterprise's desire to go all in into a particular cloud and then therefore choose first party services or or third party services so so there is this ETL modernization, which we talk about, you know, the new discipline, the new name for uh, ETL, in my opinion, is data ops, the modern data ops. And the modern data ops actually is talking about this this 360 degree treatment of ETL versus ELT, but choice of technologies which aid and assist in, in lineage, provenance, traceability, auditability, and so on and so forth, right? So if, if a customer or if an enterprise talks to us like that, we give them the whole enchilada, right? And that's the right way to do it. But we also understand, you know, that hey, there is a there's a price and a time dimension attached to it, right? It typically will take you longer to modernize because it has a lot of players. But you can certainly do lift and shift and quickly get into that environment in cloud. And that's where you know customers also, in my opinion, about eighty percent of the customers actually go for a lift and shift, lift and shift, because it is a it's a risk mitigated strategy that hey, you you're gonna go into cloud. You take the stuff into cloud and then optimize from there, right? So that's what customers are typically making the choices between. About 80% of the customers we talk to are tend to go lift and shift. 20% really want to do it in a, in a forward-looking manner, and that's modernization. I don't disagree with that. But potentially, people, that does bring a lot of 
technical debt to the table. I was thinking as you were talking, where where has Exadata been found? We talked about the prices. I mean, you're not going to have startups going in for a $900,000 database machine, right? So Exadata is far and away in the largest enterprises in the world. That's where Oracle sold that. That, that was their bread and butter. What comes with those large enterprise, uh, enterprises? A lot of process. Potentially, they have even taken Informatica or ODI ETL workflows, mappings and jobs from 20 years ago, and those were incorporated 10 years ago into Exadata. So you can have 20, 25-year-old ETL pipelines, right, that that now, like, like you said, I can do a, a cost time play, get that stuff up there, but it's still something that should be looked at from a modernization perspective. I feel like there's this misconception or it, it, it's a, it's a deceptively attractive concept that, well, Hey, we'll just swap out Exadata for Snowflake and we'll just repoint the endpoints and we'll move the data the one time and, and then it'll be fine. And then if we want to modernize, we'll have bought time, but that's kind of a, a fallacy in a lot of cases. You can't just repoint it. It doesn't just work that way. These are new tools. You may think in a, in a constrained context, like, oh, it'll be cheaper this way, but your total cost of ownership and the opportunity cost that you're that you're discarding by not modernizing and truly delivering value and just focusing on checking the box of technically we have to be off this tool by this date, it, it leaves things on the table. But I agree, Paul. that is mostly what people go for because, like Kelly said, though, in the types of companies who make this purchase and who need the help to migrate, they're of a certain size and complexity where checking the box doing the, the small constrained view thing, that, that's really common. Yes, and that, that's absolutely right. So thinking about doing the lift and shift, doing a migration from Exadata to Snowflake, what kind of pitfalls and risks do we see people make? Because I think for a lot of organizations, it's not their core business to migrate their data warehouses. So this is going to be a one-off event for them, maybe every, like Kelly said, 10 years. So we live and breathe this kind of stuff. What are the kind of things we see people, kind of pitfalls that they're going down and how can we help them mitigate those risks? Yeah, no, I've, I've got a couple of things that I'll throw out. I, I think that, so take Exadata out of the picture. When you're looking to go to a cloud data warehouse and you're looking to go to Snowflake, I, we always recommend to our clients get to know the data, get to know that Snowflake database, get to know it inside and out because it is, can I do a ton of great BI reporting and analytics on it just like I can on X data? Absolutely. But fundamentally, you are you're going to need to shift the way you think about your database. Caching, those types of things are very, very different. And if I don't do it right, it can cost me a lot of money in the cloud. It can also be the other way around. I may want to spend more if I've got an SLA that uh, that I need to meet. And so there are a lot of controls to manage that, monitor that, but, but get to know your database. That's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is really start thinking about it. And maybe with a, a lift and shift approach, you can't get there from day one, but be thinking about as you move to optimize and you move to modernize, can I go to more of an ELT type model versus a traditional ETL model? Can I use that database, that Snowflake cloud data platform in the cloud and the elasticity and scalability that comes with that to do my transformations? Can I do that in a way that's also, as we talked about earlier, maybe going to reduce some of that technical debt that I've built up over the years? So 
I mean, I don't know that it's a risk or a pitfall, but I think for me, it's things that I, I recommend. I think about when we're talking to clients right out of the gate, yeah. whether it's Exadata or something else, especially when you're going on-prem to the cloud. I think from a technical perspective, right, when you undertake this, um, and by the way, I totally agree, right? I mean, if you if you remove those constraints from, you know, time and, and cost, right? I mean, then you ask me as an architect, what will I do? I'll say modernize. I'll, I'll 99.99% of the time, I'll say modernize, right? But I understand the customers end up in a particular predicament because of extraneous reasons. Yep. Although they also don't want to do it, but they end up doing it, right? So, so if you're trying to do, say, a lift and shift, right? I think, you know, what we tend to, the, the, how does the journey look like, right? We, we tend to have them map out their environment, produce these, you know, clusters of, of data within their database. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a certain process to which you will come to know about who's using what information for what purpose and how is it related to other tables in the same database and what are the dependent ETL mappings which are feeding those tables, right? So that's step one. Step two, you know, the whole migration piece of data, right? So migration piece of data has two aspects to it, right? One is, can I can I do one-time load of the data and be done with it? Or do I need to do one-time load of the data and incrementally keep feeding the data over into, into the target database? Now, that is, you know, that is dependent on whether on a given Sunday you will be turning off this system and turning on that system. Harder to do, in my opinion, because, you know, there is some, I call it the Red Hat period or AB, like, you know, hey, are the numbers showing up properly in both the systems, you know? Yeah, are yeah. they are they matching and all that? So typically, it's hard to do that cut over type strategy. And if it is a A, a B system running in parallel kind of strategy for a period of time, then in that case, right, you have to think about your incremental load and your full load in that sense. Now, what what we have seen is, you know, especially when the data sets are really really large, right? I mean, I'm, I'm talking north of 30, 40 terabytes of data. Your incremental load strategies, of course, there are problems there. You know, your Tunities, your HVRs, your Fivetrans, your Metalians, your ADFs. You know, they, they can do um, sort of the incremental replication properly with some caveats, by the way. The caveats are if you have a distributed database log or if you have, you know, encrypted transactions, then, then you know, there are ways to solve it. But I just want to keep that conversation simple. But these tools will do it. But for that one-time migration of the data, you really have to look at it and you have to see, you know, how would you construct a, an entire architecture? Not architecture, basically, what is the pattern to actually take bulk exports of your data and, and move it to cloud? You know, some of the ways are, you know, you can do something like an Armin backup, an Armin backup, you take the backup, you you put it on AWS, some kind of, uh, I mean, all these major clouds, they now come, it, colloquially speaking, the shaper, uh, uh, hard drive to you, you put your data on it, they bring the hard drive into their cloud data center, they plug it in, voila, your, your Armin backups are there. From the Armin backup being online in your data center, sorry, in the cloud, you can instantiate a corresponding Oracle copy in cloud eh, as an instance, Re recover that Armin backup in cloud. And then after you've done that, now you can suck the data out of that database into a database of your choice and you can discard it, right? So that's typically when you have a lot of large amounts of data, right? That's what people do. But if if it is generally medium size, you know, small size data, a few billion records in a particular table, that's the highest you want to go. Then you know people can do a SQL plus extracts, or they can do even the uh, the partitioned pull of this data, you know, from 
partition tables, partition by partition by something like a Fivetran or a Matillion or an EDF would, would make sense. And there are some on-prem options as well with Informatica producing some of those flat files on, on this thing. So that takes care of one aspect. The second thing is, what is the internal, like Kelly alluded to that, if you have Informatica or ODI, and a lot of times what you will encounter in Informatica's and ODI's are three things, right? The first thing is, and by the way, you got to respect, you got to appreciate one thing about the entire Oracle tapestry. Oracle, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful database from a stored procedure functionality perspective. So a lot of people who write stuff on Oracle, they tend to really write it as stored proc and stored proc encapsulates a piece of complexity. And then those stored procs are called from a Informatica mapping or whatever, because it just encapsulated. It's the old way of doing ELT, which is basically just write a stored proc, call the stored proc, stored proc will do all of those things. There are cursors, there are transaction boundaries, which you can define in stored procs, right? And all those things, right? So, so for a database like Snowflake, you know, you got to pay attention to the stored proc conversion thing from stored procs in Oracle to stored procs in Snowflake. Snowflake is also pretty expressive. I think the cursor definitions will change, transaction boundaries will change, sequencers, primary key generation, surrogate key generations, those kind of things are also there. You have to um, account for those kind of things as well. As far as the ETL construct is concerned, the last thing which is left is also Oracle is also very expressive by way of SQL syntaxes as well. And it's not 100%, I mean, although it is ANSI-SQL compliant, but there are a lot of Oracle-specific functions, right, which rich from an Oracle perspective. You know, just, just take a join, for example, right? So, in, you know, a, a classic join condition could be left join, inner join, right join. That's how you write your syntax, right? But in Oracle, you can use these plus signs to reflect what is the join, which part of the join. So you have to take all of those things and, and convert them into a target platform, both for the... Informatica side or ODI side as well as uh, data bus. Thankfully, there are tools for doing that. There are accelerators which do a fantastic job. You know, we have a few as well. Happy to talk about those things. And then finally is the, the testing part and the BI migration part. You know, these, these two things can be interchangeably used, uh, worked on as well while you migrate stuff to cloud. It's not hard, but I think where, where, you, gonna, where you are going to get uh, a lot of you know, divergence or gaps in aspirations is what Kelly talked about, which is while you're doing that, you will see a flat table in Oracle or five tables doing the same thing or item table replicated in five different schemas. And you will quickly jump, oh, I can standardize it. I can make one table as item table and master table. That's that's what, you know, I call it as modernization as well. That's where you will kind of struggle is at a program level, how to make that fine balance between lift and shift versus modernize or kind of take a middle path approach of, of what can I what can I standardize, what can I consolidate, what can I get rid of from a technical debt, business debt perspective, and what's the implication of this to your program in a longer term sense. Yeah. No, perfect. And thinking about this process, kind of coming in full circle here, I want to go around and ask based on everything we've talked about, the HatchMap perspective, the approaches, risks, what's one piece of advice that we haven't mentioned that you want everyone listening to the show to know about this kind of migration effort? Uh, Kelly, you want to kick off? I'd be happy to. Yeah, I love your thoughts on it too, Randy and, and Preet Paul, obviously. Um, 
I think number one, I would say, and, and again, this is in general, you don't have to fret or worry about sizing anymore, everybody. <laughs> there, you know, we talked about uh, having to price out Exadata. If, if, I, if I need a half rack or a full rack and I price out a quarter rack, I do not want to have to go back to my C, CIO with that. So I've got to be really meticulous in my design. You don't have to do that with Snowflake. Certainly, you know, we can help you with the right warehouse size and how to do it in a way that's cost optimized. But that that notion of, you know, back in the appliance heyday where I had to be exact because I needed a three-year window before I go upgrade that appliance, that's out the window. That's number one for me. Number two, don't forget automation. Don't forget when you when you move to the cloud, you know, we, we as Randy said, I mean, this is not just a, hey, let's just pick it up, put it in stuff like voila, we're done. You're going to want to look at things like continuous integration. What do my development pipelines look like? How can I do that in an automated fashion? Don't forget the automation. That's something that's going to be really important. And the last thing I guess that I would say that I don't know if we've talked about, but maybe talked around is Somebody may have said something like this. You look at 10 years, 20 years of data pipelines and and, and data engineering and using appliances, using Oracle database. I mean, you just don't, as much as we want to, you just don't undo all that in three months or six months or possibly even a year. It takes a little while. So have a little bit of patience, make progress. You've got a lot of options from lift and shift to optimize, to modernize. It does not all have to be done with a flip of a switch. And if anybody tells you it's going to be done at a flip of switch, you might want to question that. Yeah. And you know, the, those are excellent perspectives, you know, Kelly, you you mentioned, right? I mean, I'll, I'll borrow one from your book and repeat that again, but I would put it like, you know, people say people process technology. I'll say people technology process, right? So, so one, the biggest things is, you know, firstly is the people, right? And from my, from my lesson learned from dealing with a lot of these things is from a people perspective. Remember, this is you're you're shifting from Kelly alluded to that a few seconds ago. You're you're shifting from a fixed model. It's like going to a dealership and saying, "Do I buy a seven seater or buy a five seater car?" Right? And a lot of time, people get stuck and they start, "Oh well, I'm going to start a family. I'm going to have two more kids. Let me let me buy a seven seater right now." And, and that never happens. Then you're stuck with a seven seater. So there's a lot of arguing going on at that time. That hey. What is the upfront committed capacity which I need to buy, regardless of whether I'm going to use it or not? And a lot of that is a speculative buy, right? So that's that's that. But so basically, what this model is, it's a model where you can buy a, a sedan or a seven-seater minivan or whatever at that particular time. As the family size increases, you're going to get that thing. But don't forget that this is also a consumption-based model. What it means is that it's it's like you know every time you take the car out for a ride you're going to be charged right so that's where the cloud cost optimization all of those things for me the single biggest thing for optimizing the cost from and it applies to the people aspect of it is as you migrate your database don't just think about the database think about the entire stack and it then becomes a cultural change which is handled by training the word is training, right? So, so don't don't cling on to your legacy ways of doing stuff. You know, I mean, I'll give you an example, right? At a very large enterprise, I saw thirty projects executing, and 
there was always these dependencies where people are sharing notes, Excel spreadsheets, Word documents, and all that. Anybody in a modern data ops sense would look at it and say, well, why are you doing that? Why don't you implement a great CI/CD pipeline with a good version control mechanism? And these 20 guys can check out, check in their code and the interdependencies or synchronization of these people with each other will reduce, right? And you will go faster, right? So these are the examples of how you need to culturally train yourself, ingrain yourself in new ways of doing things, right? So that's the people aspect of it. Just to bulletize that point, please pay attention to training and training on these modern tapestries or tooling. Because, you know, if you if you swap out, say, an Oracle extra data with Snowflake, but you keep everything else the same, you're not going to get the bang for your buck. How you do? How do you make sure that you swap out Oracle Exadata? You're really not swapping out Oracle Exadata with Snowflake. Let me be very clear. You're really swapping out the entire data pipeline and the data infrastructure out of there and going into a new paradigm. And that means, you know, what are you buying? You're buying elasticity. You're buying outcomes. You're buying. A, you're you're lowering your cost and you're lowering your time to market needs to speed up. Now, if you just take our Oracle Extra data and migrate to Snowflake and keep the rest as it is, you know, I, I don't know if you're going to score on that card. So that's where training becomes very important. Don't carry that legacy baggage. Great, great thoughts. Uh, Randy, why don't you take us home? Do you have a, a nice piece of advice that you can finish it off here, what you've seen uh, over the last few years with with customers migrating? Yeah, I think uh, I think I do. I think a lot of what you guys said is correct, and I won't bother to retread that ground. Find yourself a vendor-neutral partner who has done this before, who has your best interest in mind, who you trust that can help guide you through this process. Cause it's going to be sticky and hairy. There is no guidebook where you do step one, two, three, four, and you're all done. Every migration is unique. There's a lot of lessons we can learn, a lot of efficiencies that can be gained, but they're all unique. So whether that's HashMap, whether that's another integrator that you trust, you've worked with before, who's done good work for you, go with them. I'd advise against um, vendor bound, people, people who are strictly only going to work in one stack. If I ever am on a call with someone and I make it clear I'm not vendor neutral in that capacity, you are not getting my best advice. I am advising you based on the needs of some other vendor who is going to dictate what I can or can't say. Don't pursue that. Find a vendor neutral partner you trust and you can get this done a lot easier than just trying to brute force your way through it. Yeah, no, great thoughts. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you for joining me today, Preet, Paul, and Kelly, and sharing some knowledge about Exadata. A lot of fun. Randy, thank you so much for uh, hosting. And uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of fun talking about Exadata. Really took me back to, uh, to prior years. Thank you for hosting me as well, uh, Randy. Perfect. And of course, always thank you to our audience for listening. Uh, please subscribe for more HashMap on tap content, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.